Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, or at least in his camp in southwestern Philistine territory, David has further solidified his holdings at that border by taking care of the bandits that raided the place and took away his wives and kids while David and his men were gone for the muster during the last episode. That's 1 Samuel 30 for detail. As a result, there will be fewer bandits to snip at the southwestern heels of Israel's borders in the future. Now, before we go further, let's notice that there's been a seam imposed here. It just so happens that this is where the original book of Samuel gets split in two in your owner's manual. Though we've been waxing philosophical, Saul's death is still recent in our current timeline. His body has just been respectfully rescued, cremated, and buried by the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead, whom, you should recall, Saul had rescued from Nahash the Nasty a few episodes ago, thus fostering a lasting loyalty to the tall king. This is the point at which the Greek translators insert their split and start 2 Samuel. Yes, it makes some sense, especially since 2 Samuel begins with after the death of Saul, and the books of Joshua and Judges begin the same way with the deaths of Moses and Joshua, respectively. However, we are still not entering a sequel here. We are in the same book, Samuel. However, if you're going to track along in your manual, please turn now to 2 Samuel. Resuming, when David hears of the death of Jonathan, the best friend he's ever had, and Saul, the only human king he's ever had, there are no cries of, The king is dead, long live the king. Far from it. David again shows what is truly in his heart as he reacts to the tragic news with deep sorrow. Sorrow at both losses, not just that of his friend. He weeps, stops eating, tears his clothes, uh, it's a habitat thing, and mourns their deaths. Putting his creative gifts to cathartic work, David composes a lament that bewails the fall of these two mighty warriors of Israel. You can read it in 2 Samuel 1, verse 17. In contrast to the earlier popular song written by others that gained him instant notoriety at the beginning of David's military career, uh, the one that compared Saul's thousands with David's ten thousands, David's lament over Saul does nothing but ennoble and commend the slain king, his son, and their valor. To his further credit, David, who's not king of anyone at this point, orders that in the very least this lament should be taught to his own people of Judah in order to honor the memory of my anointed Saul. Some time after this, David's first post-mourning action is again an indicator of the man's heart and why this fellow is a man after mine. Does he gather his advisors and cabinet to plan his next move? 
Does he send out spies to check the political climate of either Israel or Philistia? Nope. He asks me what to do next. Go ahead and put that on the 3x5 card on your mirror, why don't you? 1. Ask Yahweh what to do next. David's from Judah, right? Well, he doesn't even head there without my say-so. Yahweh, should I go up to any of the towns in Judah? My reply, yep. Note that David then asks me to be more specific with which town do you want me to go to? Not only does the boy ask for direction, but for as much information as possible. Hebron, I say, and that's his green light. I wouldn't send him back to Bethlehem where he'd get henpecked and questioned by everybody who knew him when he was but a lad with a who do you think you are? I think he's the next king, and so do the people of Hebron. So David moves his family and his men out of Philistine exile back into the promised land, into Hebron smack dab in the middle of the land of Judah. Now remember, David's been expecting that my promises will come true eventually, and he's been acting according to that anticipation. Though he was living in Philistine exile, he's maintained favor with his fellow tribesfolk in Judah. First of all, he's protected their borders simply with his presence. Even more, he's also been sending spoils from his military successes to the elders of major Judean towns, including Hebron. So, needless to say, David and his entire entourage get a warm welcome when they arrive back home in the land of Judah. The tribe gathers around David there at Hebron and anoints him king over their twelfth of the nation. Further evidence that David wasn't just waiting for the demise of Saul so he could take the throne is seen in David's first action as king. He finds out about those valiant men from Jabesh-Gilead and how they're the ones who rescued Saul's body from shameful treatment by the Philistines, bringing it home to rest in the land that Saul had saved. David responds to their kindness by sending messengers to Jabesh-Gilead thanking them for their service to Saul and to me, calling my blessing, love, and faithfulness down upon them with the promise of reward at his own hands when the opportunity arises. Signed, with love, David, King of Judah. Well, unfortunately, a whole lot of folks in Israel think their monarchy is going to work just like those of the nations around them with a hereditary model. Not that we won't make use of kings' sons in the future, starting even with the next generation, but the tough transition that's about to hit is once again a symptom of a nation of eyes taken off of me and pointed at the neighbors to decide how best to do something. So now, a fellow who was merely a footnote a while ago, Abner, comes to the fore in a good bit of intrigue that might have come right out of one of your Habitat's novels. Abner's been the commander of Saul's army this whole time, though he fades to the background when Saul gives command to David after Goliath. Abner has only shown up in a couple of conversations in Tom to this point. Now, though, with his cousin King Saul gone, Abner steps into the drama with quite literally a vengeance. 
Abner has dually vested interests in establishing a new status quo that's as close to the old one as possible. His political position depends on it, and so does his family's. You caught the detail that Abner is Saul's cousin, and thus also from the tribe of Benjamin. You could also refer to them as the Benjamite tribe, but then you bright as bright can be Aussies and a handful of men-at-work fans would have overpowering flashbacks. Abner's being in charge of the military certainly helped his agenda. Military strength played a heavy hand in politics long before the invention of gunpowder. Abner's not necessarily just out to save his or his family's place. There are plenty of examples all around him in how the neighbor nations get their next king. The dead king's oldest son gets the crown. This is neither news to them nor to you, and as I said, I'll do that myself most of the time. The problem here is the same issue we've been battling under Saul's entire regime, and the apple clearly hasn't fallen far from the tree. No one neither Abner nor any of Saul's surviving sons is asking me to show them the way forward. They're continuing with the figure-things-out-on-your-own way of thinking that lost Saul the crown. Note once again, and do forgive our repeated mention of this, the contrast with David, whose first inclination is to check in with me. So, Abner installs the seemingly logical Ishbal, Saul's oldest surviving son, on his dead dad's throne. Now, a note about his name, Ishbals. As I mentioned before, prior to the term Baal getting indelibly linked to a specific Canaanite idol, it simply meant Lord. Thus, Ishbal means man of the Lord, referring to me. A later scribe, though, couldn't stand the idol connection in his habitat and changed it to Ishbosheth, man of the shameful thing. Your manual likely uses the later revised name, but I'll take the Lord. Thank you. The reason you've not heard of Ishbaal so far is that there's not much to the fellow, character-wise, though he does manage a bit of metal in a moment. Just enough to lose the crown. He certainly pales in every comparison to Jonathan. Ishbaal's a perfect fit for the dominant Abner, though. The new king is forty at the time, and pretty much the rest of Israel, excepting Judah, that is, falls in line and accepts the arrangement of Ishbaal as king, though it must be said that they aren't aware of any other options being available yet. A brief civil war ensues. An early skirmish results in 360 deaths in the Abner Ishbaal camp and merely 20 in David's. Future battles continue to be lopsided in David's favor as the war goes on and on. This should not be a surprise, as David was the runt of his family's litter only to be anointed king, and the runt on the field before Goliath only to win the day. He's got the smaller force and following now, but guess who is going to carry the day? The war is not a quick one, and David has a growing family of his own back home in Hebron. In addition to the two wives he arrived with, he's gained four more, and each wife bears him a son in the interim. And yes, a family's capacity to have more than one child at the same time is one of the reasons that habitat practiced polygamy. 
While David has been making babies in Hebron with his wives, Abner's been messing around in the bedroom with Saul's concubine, Rizpah, a concubine being most often a slave taken as wife. You can bet Abner's had his eye on Rizpah for some time, but was not fool enough to fool around with her while Saul lived. Now that Abner's propped Saul's son up on the throne, he feels like Saul owes him a little payback. Ishbaal does have enough character to confront Abner for so dishonoring his father's memory. Rizpah is not Ishbaal's mom. Saul's full-fledged non-concubine wife is. Explore that in 2 Samuel 3.6. King's sons by concubine were considered eligible for the throne and inheritance, but usually were farther down the line in birth order after children born by full-fledged free wives. Yet more ancient habitat tidbits you never thought you'd know. Abner is so upset by Ishbaal's confrontation. After all I've done for you, this is the thanks I get? Abner swears to bring Ishbaal's kingship to a close by swinging everyone over to follow David as king instead. And just like that, Ishbaal becomes the fellow you've never heard of until now. Now, did I push Abner into Rizpah's bedroom? Of course not. He and his lust did that all by themselves. Did I force Abner to switch allegiance to David in the face of Ishbal standing up for his father's honor? Nope. Abner's pride and anger did that all by themselves. Is this going to unite the nation under David without spilling any more blood in civil war? Moving the moving my Abra plan forward again? Yeah, you betcha. Ah, the deep mysteries of causality. We will peer into them together again next time on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.